Hey listeners, thanks for dropping in. I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. Hey listeners. Welcome back to Buried Motives. We're glad you're joining us again. We are in a good mood today and hopefully we'll be able to keep that going even though we're going to be talking about horrible things. Do those two go hand in hand? Not usually. (laughs) Okay, I better clarify. We're not in a good mood because we're talking about a murderer, but we've been chatting for a while before we started to record and we've been having some good laughs. Yes, we have. (laughs) One day we'll have to invite our listeners to hear all the pre-recorded stuff. That's true. Maybe do a live. And they can join in on the conversation. (laughs) That'd be awesome. We were listening to some of our past recording stuff just a minute ago, and I said to Melissa, why are we so weird? (laughs) We are so grateful that you guys keep coming back and listening. We really are. We're happy to have you as part of our Buried Motives family. Mm -hmm. So Christy, what have you got for us today? Well, today's case is one that I just happened to stumble upon while doing other research and was one that I hadn't heard of before. So I kind of found this one by accident. I love those ones. That's like fate laying it in your lap for you. I really think so. When I heard this one, I actually thought of you. I thought Melissa will really dig this case. You've got me curious. Why am I going to dig this case? I don't know. I just felt like you will think it's interesting. (laughs) Is there cool forensics or or is it because of the brutality of it? What kind of person do you think I am? Well, you're just going to have to find out. (laughs) But I am interested if any of our listeners have heard this case. So if you have, please let us know. So I'm going to take a wild guess and say we are going out of North America. We are. We're going to go to Indonesia today. Ooh. And maybe that's why it made me think that you would like this one, because you often like to go to obscure places and do cases from those places. Yes, I'm researching one right now that I'm super excited about. That must be it. Also, this case has a lot to do with black magic, And a man seeking power above all else. I love it. I figured you would. (laughs) I just find it so fascinating how people's belief systems play into their actions and what it allows them to do to other people. And that is totally the case with this dirtbag. Now you've piqued my interest. He had a goal of murdering 70 women, but was caught after killing 42. A fact that he openly admitted he was disappointed about. Which reminded me about Robert Pickton saying he had wished he'd been able to take one more woman's life to make his kills an even 50. I just thought the audacity of these dirtbags. Yeah, that is so wrong. Yeah, I don't know what can be that much worse when a dirtbag gets caught and their response is to say, oh, dang it, I didn't get to murder more. Yeah, I didn't reach my goal. Right. Is he narcissistic? No, I wouldn't say so. Okay. To be honest, no. So like I said, our case does take place in Indonesia. Which did make it challenging to find things like court documents and all articles written in English. But I was able to find quite a bit of information about what transpired between 1986 and 1997, the years of rampage by our killer. I must say that as I did research this case, it was hard to believe that I wasn't reading about an old-timey murder from the 1800s. Despite the details sounding like some type of urban legend, he was only arrested 25 years ago. Yeah, that isn't that long ago. I was actually thinking that's outside of the golden age of serial killers. That's when forensics was starting to come around and we had better technologies to catch people. 
That is true. However, I'm not sure the technology that they had in Indonesia at that time. I don't know if they were ahead of us, behind us. I don't know. Oh, good point. I'm going to first set the scene. Our case takes place in Medan, Indonesia. Medan is the largest city in Indonesia's North Sumatra province and one of the four main central cities of Indonesia, joined by Jakarta, Subaya, and Makassar. And I'm going to apologize right now for mispronouncing names. I'll do my best, but I mean no disrespect if I say a name wrong. But it's for sure going to happen. Absolutely it is. Even if I have the right spelling, just the way I say it, there's going to be a Canadian flair to it. So I do apologize. We love our Canadian flair. Yeah. (laughs) No kidding, eh? (laughs) (laughs) What are you talking about, hoser? (laughs) Get over there, you little Canuck. (laughs) We actually don't talk like that. I don't know why we get teased about it. In 1950, just a year after our killer was born, the population of Medan was 284,000, but has now grown to over 2.4 million. When the murders took place, it had grown to over 1.5 million. And all this means is that our dirtbag saw substantial growth in the area he lived throughout his lifetime. And the Medan we are talking about is a lot different than how people know it now. But it also sounds like he had an increasing population to work with and even easier to hide amongst. Yes, absolutely. And I just wanted to clarify, because we know it as a very large metropolis now, but it wasn't so when he was born. Okay. Our dirtbag is Ahmad Siraji. He was born on January 10th, 1949 in Medan. He was also known as Nasib Kalawa and used the alias Datuk Marinji. He was Javanese, which is the largest ethnic group native to central and eastern part of the Indonesian island Java. Ahmad's father was a well-respected man in their community. He was revered as a sorcerer, which we will talk about in a moment. Although his father was looked up to by the community and his son, he was kind of a dirtbag. He was very neglectful of Ahmad. All Ahmad wanted was his father's approval, but instead he was bullied by him. So because he was looked up to by the community, is this a community that does practice black magic? Absolutely. It was very prevalent in Indonesia at that time. Okay, so it was like their traditions. It absolutely was. Okay. And a highly revered one. And was it tied into with their religion as well? There were six major religions in Indonesia at the time, but this wasn't considered one of them. This was a separate practice. Because his dad was so busy practicing all this black magic, he didn't have a time for Ahmad. Right, or the patients. Okay. Ahmad was not provided with a proper education growing up and had a hard time making friends. Kids his age would also pick on him. He was described as being different, and I wonder if he gave off the vibe that something wasn't quite right with him, or if he was just a product of his environment. And maybe possibly both. It's always both. But I do find it so interesting that kids often pick up on those personality differences way faster than adults do. For sure. I'm wondering if there was some kind of personality disorder right from a young age. Yeah, because I think kids pick up on somebody that's not fitting into the social norms that they expect. And so they're more apt to point it out or ostracize a child, which is sad, but they notice. Mm -hmm. Whereas adults, we have a tendency to be a little bit more lenient and more accepting of different personalities because we've been taught we need to be kind to everybody kind of thing. Right. We're definitely more tolerant. Yes. Or he'll grow out of it. He's going through an awkward stage. Yeah. Oh, that's just a kid. Yes. Where kids are like, oh, that guy's weird. Mm hmm. But I'm sure we've all met that person where there's just something off about them and you just can't quite put your finger on it. And I think that's how it was with Ahmad. And I often think that happens too. 
with people that just have that evil vibe about them. Yeah. With what he goes on to do, I wouldn't doubt that he had that from the beginning. So creepy. Indeed. (laughs) (laughs) Regardless, basically, whichever way he turned, he was being put down. I'm not sure if the abuse from his father ever turned physical, but it was definitely emotional. Reports say that Ahmad grew up extremely lonely. He also grew up fascinated by the black magic that his father performed. He wanted to be just like his dad. Which is so common for little boys. Mm -hmm. Especially ones when they're pining for their father's approval and affection. Mm -hmm. And if something had his father's love, then that's why he would put his attention there. True. He would maybe feel more accepted by his dad by showing an interest. Mm -hmm. I was not able to find any information about his mother. But I'm assuming that in 1949, when Ahmad was born, she was likely conditioned to follow her husband's lead, or at least not to object to it. Yeah, you could see that for that time. Not surprisingly, as Ahmad got older, he began to get into trouble with the law. He was arrested for petty but also violent crimes and was sent to prison twice. He spent 10 years in prison the first time, and then two years after being released, he stole a cow and was sent back to jail for a time. Sorry. He tried to steal a cow? How do you steal a cow? He did steal a cow. (laughs) He didn't just try. He succeeded. Okay. In the middle of the night, you bring over your tractor and you go cow tipping? I don't think he probably had a tractor. (laughs) He probably just let it out of that pasture and took it to his. I don't know. Oh, then it probably is a lot easier than I'm envisioning. I think so. (laughs) (laughs) I'm envisioning some like teenager trying to hide it underneath of his coat. Nothing to see here, people. (laughs) (laughs) I'm envisioning some rope and, you know, trying to like harness this cow back to his place. Okay. That totally makes way more sense. (laughs) His first jail sentence was at the age of 19. So this means he spent almost all of his 20s behind bars. They were violent offenses. They were petty and violent crimes. Okay, but multiple crimes. Yes, and I'm not sure exactly which one of his crimes landed him in jail. And that seems harsh to us because for petty crimes, usually people get a slap on the wrist. But then that doesn't necessarily mean, though, that's a good thing. Oftentimes we're talking about them. We're like, oh, why couldn't they just keep them in longer? But in this case, they should have kept them in longer. Longer than 10 years. Mm -hmm. 10 years wasn't enough. Exactly. And when you go in there at 19 and you're almost 30 when you get out, those are some developmental years that you're in there. And so he's done that well in prison with other prisoners. Mm hmm. Likely a lot of grown men, who knows what kind of influence they were on him. Just extra training to be even more of a dirtbag when he got out, probably. Probably. However, when he got out of jail the second time, he decided he needed to get his act together and put his life on a better track. If only this was how the story ended. Ahmad would absolutely put his life on a different track, but this track would turn out to be a deadly and sinister one. Do you know what his influence was to turn his life around? Well, Ahmad wanted to be respected by the people around him like his father was. And so he decided to follow in his father's footsteps and become a sorcerer. Because at that time when he got out of prison, everyone was looking down on him. And he remembered having so much admiration for his father of how the people in the community looked up to him and respected him. Mm -hmm. He was a dukin, which is a type of sorcerer. I'll do my best to explain as I think it's a little different from how we understand it in North America. But I think it is important to go over as it does give us context to this case. Dukin is the Indonesian term for shaman. I believe it is a class of shaman that uses more supernatural powers. A shaman is a traditional healer, a spirit medium, an expert of sorcery, 
and a master of black magic. Many believe that Dukins possess all these powers and can help grant people the things they most desire. Others believe they are just scammers who prey on the superstitious and vulnerable. Hmm. To become a Dukin, the knowledge must be passed down to you orally. Customs for this can differ from region to region. Some people can seek out to become Dukins and be like an apprentice, but for others it's inherited. When someone inherits their knowledge from a parent or grandparent, they are held in higher regard than other Dukins. So this set Ahmad up, then? It really did. I'm not sure if Ahmad did actually learn from his father, but I'm sure it worked in his favor to be the son of a sorcerer. In my research, it seemed like the title of sorcerer, Dukin, and shaman were often used interchangeably. There would usually be an initiation ritual where they would meditate alone in some remote area like a mountain, waterfall, or even a cemetery. This is totally giving me narco-Satanist vibes. I actually thought you would connect it to that. That's why I thought you would like this case. Yeah. Not all Dukins would perform the same service. They would be called on for various reasons, which I will list, just to give us a basis of what is about to happen with a mod. Dukins would be called for supernatural or paranormal concerns like possessions, in which they would perform exorcisms, health issues that needed to be healed using herbs, mantras, or chants, inanimate objects, spiritual communication, prayer, and offerings to heal. They were also needed when a prophetic vision was needed, mostly when a person was wanting to communicate with a deceased loved one to gain insight into the future, protection blessings, to keep a person, land, or business safe from things like termites and demons, or to help ensure a good harvest. Oh, Leonardo could have used his help. Yeah, no kidding. For the protection blessing. (laughs) The gift of tongues, to speak to spirits of different archaic languages, and to cast revenge hexes in incantations, which means spells of sorts. Mm -hmm. I've always wanted to see somebody speak in tongues. I don't know if I would want to. (laughs) I just want to see it. I wouldn't want to be in the same room when it happens, maybe. (laughs) But these were the things that Dukins were said to have been able to do. Okay. So certain Dukins would be called for certain things. They would kind of have expertise in all of these things. Okay. They're specialists in their practice. Right. And so where did Ahmad fit into all that? Well, I will tell you. But first, one last thing I want to mention that is involved in this case is black or dark magic. It is believed to be supernatural powers or magic used for evil and selfish purposes, or is magic that is associated with the devil or other evil spirits. So we'll just give a little disclaimer here. This is just the information I found out about this time frame in Indonesia. We're not saying that anybody who practices black magic is evil, or if these are your beliefs, we're not trying to speak poorly about them. This is just how it's been portrayed with this case. Right. So it's like a mod's version of being a Dukin. Doesn't necessarily apply to everybody else that actually practices as a Dukin. For sure. Okay. Yeah, just a little disclaimer there. (laughs) We mean no offense ever. Only offense to our dirtbags. To recap, before we get into the nitty gritty, Ahmad was a neglected, bullied, uneducated child. He went to prison for petty and violent crimes, as well as theft twice, then decided to become a shaman, dukin, sorcerer, who dabbled in black magic. This sounds like a recipe for a disaster. Mm -hmm. And we know from his past, he has violent tendencies. So this will answer your question about what area that Ahmad excelled in. Ahmad specialized in helping mostly women who were seeking guidance 
on how to maintain their beauty, find fortune, and prevent their male counterparts from leaving them. He became known for his ability to help these women, and so women continued to come to him for help. The women would pay him for his services, but he did not earn enough to sustain himself, so he also raised cattle. To be a cattle farmer, he had to live on a large piece of land that kept him safe from onlookers. Okay, so this totally sounds like he's setting up his own perfect little murdering farm where he has women, his main customers, come to him and then he has all this land to hide everything on. It definitely works out for his favor. To make it even worse, his land bordered a large sugarcane plantation. Sugarcane can grow between two and six meters tall, which is like six to 20 feet. Pictures remind me of what some cornfields look like here in Canada. They can be looked at as creepy, secluded places to get lost in. In fact, in Canada, we have mazes that you can pay to go through made from cornfields. Lots of horror movies feature cornfields, and the sugarcane field gives me similar vibes. Oh, I can just envision women trying to run away into those cane fields. Surprisingly, they don't. None of them get that far? I'll explain. From the outside looking in, it would appear that Ahmad had his life together and was finally on a good track. Ahmad became very respected by his neighbors, just like his father had been. He would volunteer his time to help someone in need, especially if the person needing help was sick. He did well and would donate money to local charities. This in turn caused his neighbors to recommend him to anyone they came across who were seeking magical or healing services. Okay, now I'm getting Dorothea Puente vibes. <laughs> It's all rolled into one with this case for you. Wow. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> people believed he could do things like move the clouds, heal the sick, and make people rich and beautiful. Oh, you can totally see how he would be sought after then. Yeah. Imagine him in Hollywood. Yeah. <laughs> Ahmad did okay in the romantic department. He was married three times, but never divorced. What? He was a polygamist. With all of his wives together? Yep. Sister wives. Totally sister wives. <laughs> you don't know how true that is. Okay. When I looked it up, I believe polygamy is still legal there. So he wasn't actually breaking the law. The part about having three wives wasn't that shocking to me. What did surprise me is that all of his wives were sisters. No way. Yeah. So they were literally sister wives. Keeping it all in the family, I guess. Yep. Their names were Nagatia, Tuminai, and Tumina. I couldn't find any information on these sisters prior to marrying Ahmad. I'm not sure if he married them all at once or one at a time. I'll explain why later, but if I had to guess which wife might have been the head wife, I would guess it was Tuminai. She was his favorite? I think so, and I'll explain why. Okay. In a little bit. <laughs> Despite having three wives, there are no recorded children of Ahmad's. Ooh. I'm unsure if it is because they were never recorded or if he had fertility issues. And if he did, I guess his black magic wasn't strong enough to cure it. That is interesting. It is, with three wives. Mm-hmm. And most cultures that practice polygamy put a really strong importance on having children and posterity. Mm -hmm. So you think it would be strongly encouraged for them to have children. Oh, for sure. I don't think they were against having children. He could have had a whole slew of children back at home, and they were just never recorded. Okay. Because it doesn't seem there was a lot of great record keeping going on. Right. In 1986, when Ahmad would have been 37, he claimed that because of his shaman abilities, he was visited by his deceased father in a dream. In this dream, his father instructed him 
to drink the saliva of 70 different women. So he wants him to go kiss a whole bunch of women? Drink their saliva, not just kiss, drink it. By doing this, he was told that he would become an all-powerful mystic healer. Ahmad didn't even question this instruction from his father. No, if that's based in your beliefs that the dead can come back and commune with you and you can take instruction for them, then you wouldn't ever second guess the information that you're getting. Right, especially when you believe you have that power to communicate with the dead. Mm -hmm. Ahmad didn't want to wait to just happen upon 70 freshly deceased women to drink their spit. So he decided he would need to kill them. Wait, they had to be deceased? No, nowhere did I find that it said that they did. He made that jump that I'm going to have to kill 70 women. That's how he interpreted. Yes. He most likely didn't feel that he could find willing participants. So he decided murder was the best and really only way to accomplish this in a timely manner. That's a big jump from having just 70 women spit in a cup and then drinking it. Well, that was my thought. I felt that with him being a sorcerer, I'm sure he could have talked some of his female patients into giving him their spit willingly. He could have said he needed their spit in a cup to perform a spell. There's no excuse for being a dirtbag. No. So he was just looking for an excuse to enact out all of his violent tendencies. Possibly. It didn't seem like he even entertained any other idea or way of getting that spit, that saliva. Right. Just seems so odd. There are so many different ways that you could collect spit. Yeah, and he went totally for the dark way of doing it. Mm -hmm. Since Ahmad was in a position where women sought him out for help, finding victims wouldn't be a hard task for him to do. He would even get paid by them before he took their lives. That's just so dirtbaggish. What is the price of helping women find beauty, wealth, and lasting love, you ask? For Ahmad, it was anywhere between $200 and $400. We might have to go to Indonesia, Christy. (laughs) Hey, $200 is a pretty good deal for wealth and beauty and lasting love. I know. I thought that was pretty good. Uh Steal of a deal. (laughs) Except he's the one stealing. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. Unfortunately, we don't have information on the women individually that Ahmad murdered until his last victim, whose disappearance helped him get caught. However, he was very ritualistic in his practice and murdered them all in the same fashion. I will walk you through once what he did to each one of his unsuspecting customers. 42 of them. Yes. The sheer number is hard to comprehend. It really is. A woman would come to Ahmad for some type of help. They would come to his cattle farm, again, away from the peering eyes of others. Once there, they would open up to Ahmad and ask him to help them with their specific worry or insecurity. I imagine he gave them false hope and assured them that he could give them what they were wanting. No problem. The women would pay him up front and he would begin his ritual. So his wives were never any of his victims? No. Did they know what was going on? That we'll talk about. That's debatable. To start, he led each woman into the sugarcane field beside his house. He would instruct them to dig a hole about waist deep. (gasps) They dug their own graves? He was a lazy dirtbag and told them that having them dig was part of the ritual. When the hole was dug, he told the women to get inside the hole, assuring them that it was necessary to carry out the spell. Desperate to receive the blessing they sought after, the women would willingly get into the hole. Ahmad would then proceed to fill the hole around them back up with dirt, essentially burying them from the waist down. And so they couldn't fight back. Exactly. If the women became nervous, he would assure them it was all necessary to fulfill their chosen spell. 
What they didn't know is that this was instead part of his black magic ritual to gain occult power. Ahmad was not a large man, and so I assume he did this to immobilize his prey. Once the women were stuck in the ground, he could walk around to the back of them, take out an electrical cord, and strangle these poor women to death. So he strangled all of his victims. Yes, all in the same manner. Made them dig their hole, made them get in, buried them back up from the waist down, walked behind them, and strangled them with a cord. Was there any witnesses that came forward after the fact that said, yeah, I got out of the hole and ran away? Nobody did. Nobody got out of the hole. Maybe it's just because of what we do, but I'm thinking I'm not getting in any hole. Sorry. They are just believing him. They're going to him for help. He's highly recommended. He's respected and highly revered in the community. And so they believe him that this is just part of the ritual. How would your spidey senses not be going off, though? Yeah. And we will talk about that with his final victim because we hear more about what she went through. The belief must have been so strong to keep them in that hole while he filled dirt around them. Yeah. But he assured them the whole time. Don't worry. It's fine. This is just part of the ritual. You want to be beautiful. You want to keep your husband. You want wealth. This is how you're going to get it. That belief must have been so strong. Absolutely. Which makes him so terrible because he's using that against them. Yeah, he's such a manipulator. For sure. Once he knew they were for sure dead and would not regain consciousness, Ahmad would in fact drink their saliva. He would never admit how he did it, just that he did. Police don't know if he somehow scooped some of it into a cup to drink or if he just slurped it right from their mouths. My guess is the latter. Ugh, gross. After drinking the magical spit, Ahmad would dig the women's bodies back out of her hole to remove her clothing. He said he did it so her body would decompose faster. Next, he buried their bodies, not in the field, but closer to his house. The field was just so no one could happen to spot his devilish work. To channel even more of the spirit's mystical powers, he would bury the women laying down with their heads facing towards his house. He 100% believed that if these dead, decaying women were looking in his direction, his powers would grow even more. What? So all these women are buried on his property with their faces towards his house. That is so bizarre because usually with a killer that has any kind of remorse, they turn their faces away from like the exit or away from where the killer is going. The killer doesn't want them looking anywhere in his direction. He has no remorse. These are just a means to his end of gaining more power. To do what with? Does it ever say what he wanted to do with all this power that he was trying to gain? Because it seems like he's got this good life already going for him. He's got three wives. He's got all this land. He's got some cows. He's got a reputation now. Like what more was he after? I think his whole life he just wanted praise and approval because that's what he didn't get as a child. I think he was trying to fill that void over and over again. Huh. And why just be a sorcerer when you can be an all-powerful sorcerer? It kind of gave me Jafar vibes from Aladdin. Oh, I can see that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was just his greed. Power hungry. Yep. It was common for people to consult mystic doctors in Indonesia. This meant that a lot of Ahmad's victims came right to his house willingly. However, if business was slow, Ahmad grew impatient. He would then venture out to the city to pick up a sex worker. This poor woman would then become his next victim. He chose sex workers because he thought they wouldn't be missed and it would be harder to determine if they were even missing. So that just seems counterintuitive to me because he's killing his customers. 
that people know are coming to his house, that they could have families that are looking for them, and they know their last known place is going to be with him. And then he's choosing sex workers because they're ambiguous. Like that just seems more like he's choosing them because he's lazy. Well, not necessarily. And I'm going to explain why. Okay. Ahmad said he picked up sex workers because he, quote, could not wait around for more women to come. He was greedy and impatient. Ahmad would continue this ritual for a total of 11 years. To answer your question, one of the reasons he was able to continue killing women for their saliva for so many years was because many of the women were too embarrassed to tell anyone that they were coming to see him. They didn't want anyone to know that they were seeking things like beauty, wealth, or lasting love. And many women reportedly visited to receive help in preventing their husbands or boyfriends from cheating on them. Okay, but they had husbands who should have been looking for them. Oh, definitely they were being looked for, but not a lot of them knew that they were going to go see him. So Ahmad wasn't part of the connection? No. Because a woman isn't going to go tell her husband, I'm going to see a sorcerer to put a spell on me so that you won't ever cheat on me. Right. Or you won't leave me. Okay. I think it's because of the nature of how he helps these women. That it's secretive. Right. They might be embarrassed to say, oh, I want more beauty. Right. But we also know that his reputation grows by word of mouth. Yeah. How does word of mouth not spread that some of his customers just mysteriously go missing? Yeah, no one does for 11 years. They don't put the connection together. That's unreal. He's not suspected once. The only victim that I could find a little more information on was his last. 21-year-old Shri Kamala Dewey hired a rickshaw puller to take her to Ahmad's property on April 24th, 1997. So how does the rickshaw driver not report that, hey, I took this woman here? He will definitely play a part in Ahmad's discovery. Okay, finally, somebody's paying attention. Mm Mm-hmm. Come on a journey like no other, where you will discover many roads that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress-free life. And the beauty is, you don't need any vacation time for this adventure. The journey will come to you. Join Avery Rich on your very own journey into yoga. Along the way, she will demystify yoga poses and guide you into a yoga posture or short sequence, all in less than 15 minutes. You have nothing to lose but stress. The Journey Into Yoga podcast. It's not for people who like yoga. It's for people who don't like yoga. Follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at AveryRich.com. I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent. Almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com. The rickshaw puller was a 15-year-old boy named Andrea Suito. Like many of the prior victims, Sri Kamala was embarrassed about seeking the help of a mystic healer and asked Andreas to keep her secret. She also never asked him to come and pick her back up. When Sri Kamala never returned home later that night, her father went to the police and reported her missing. Many women had been reported missing over the years, but because Ahmad was so respected, no one ever suspected him of foul play. Hmm. And why did she not have a return? I'm not sure. Maybe she didn't know how long it was going to take. Okay. I don't know. Three days after Sri Kamala went missing, Ahmad's neighbor, a young farmer, 
was walking through the sugar field adjacent to Ahmad's home. He was on his way to feed his livestock when he noticed a suspicious mound of fresh dirt. This didn't sit right with him, and so he rushed to the head of the village, Sagito, and informed him of what he had found. Sagito gathered a few other men, there were six of them in total, and took them to check out this young farmer's claims. Sagito later testified that he and the other men tried to inspect the mound of dirt. They decided to stick a piece of wood into it. When they did, they could smell the horrible stench of decay. Upset by their discovery, they quickly informed the military. The military told them to dig up some of the dirt to see what was buried there. They told Sagito that if they discovered a body, they should leave it there and contact them immediately. And at first this seemed really outlandish to me, but then I thought maybe they thought someone had buried an animal or just something weird. So I'm trying to give them the benefit of the doubt. Okay, but sorry, you said this was in the sugar cane. He was walking through the sugar cane and saw the pile of dirt. Near? I think it was close to the border of the property. So he buried them on his property. Usually on his property. So his property connects with the sugarcane mm-hmm. field. So this one would have been really close to his property in the sugarcane. Because in some of the videos that I watched, you could see the sugarcane in the videos. Okay. So it was really close. If that was confusing before when I said looking towards his house, they weren't right up by his house, but more so on his property. So what kind of his property line? Yeah. Okay. To their horror, when the men went back and started to dig, they discovered the rotting body of Sri Kamala. She was naked and her body had begun to bloat from decomposition. She was hardly recognizable. Her mother could only identify her by looking at her legs. Her mother, Arsana, said, quote, It was like my worst nightmare had come to life. I refused to believe it was her, but there she was, dead in front of me. That would have been so sad. I cannot even imagine. No. To make this extra sickening, one report I found said that Ahmad was amongst the six men who dug her up. He lived right next to the sugarcane plantation, so I think that it's very likely that he helped. Yeah, because he would have had to keep up appearances of like, oh yeah, what is this on my property? Well, and they're trying to gather men to come and help. He's right there, Mm -hmm. his property. So it would make sense that he was. But I did only see that in one report. Okay. Remember the 15-year-old rickshaw driver, Andreas? He played a pivotal role in figuring out who the newly discovered body belonged to. When he heard that the body of a young woman had been discovered next to Ahmad's house, he went to the police and told them that he had dropped off Sri Kamala there just days prior. This is how police even knew to call in her parents to identify her remains. If Andreas never went to the authorities, Sri Kamala's family may have never received answers as to what happened to their precious daughter. Isn't that just so bizarre? Just the fate of that all, of him having to hear the news, make the connection, and then decide to go and share his information with the police. What would have happened if he hadn't have watched the news that day or heard about it? Absolutely. It was definitely fated, I believe. Huh. And at 15, even just to have that gumption to, I'm going to go to the police and tell them what I know. Yeah. Like, what 15-year-old of ours is watching the news even? True. Enough to be like, oh... Mind you, this was big information. I think a lot of the villagers were talking about it. Mm. Andreas later told police that Sri Kamala had been very secretive about where she was going and why. In fact, she wouldn't even tell him where exactly they were going until they were halfway there. He said, quote, I asked her again. She said she wanted to go to Datuk's house. 
I was curious because it was rather late at night. So I asked why she was going there. And she had told me not to be too nosy. Oh. And maybe this is why it stood out to him too, because it was late at night. She hadn't told him right away, just, you know, go in that direction until they were halfway there. And then she's like, I want you to take me to this property. Right. That makes sense. When police found out that Andreas had dropped off Sri Kamala at the revered shaman's house, a full investigation and later an inspection took place at Ahmad's home and property. The military and police worked together to unearth dozens of bodies. Identifying the women would not be an easy task. Sri Kamala had been identified already, and four other bodies that were fresher than the others were identified right away. Their families had been looking for them. Other bodies ended up being cremated without ever being claimed. Oh, that is sad. And so there's still families out there wondering where their loved one is. Mm-hmm. Which is just always so unfortunate when that happens in a case. Mm-hmm. The bodies were at different stages of decomposition. Most had been reduced to just a pile of bones. Because he'd been doing this for 11 years. Mm-hmm. The ages of the women ranged from 11 to 30. What? It was not suspected that any of these women had been sexually assaulted. Most bodies were too decomposed to tell, but I didn't find any reports that Sri Kamala had been violated in that way. He later claimed that his killings were not sexually motivated. What was he doing with an 11-year-old? I know. It didn't seem to fit, but he was so impatient in wanting to get to 70, I think he just took whoever he could. When police first questioned Ahmad, he adamantly denied having anything to do with any of the dead women and children found on his property. On May 2nd, he was arrested after police found Sri Kamala's handbag, dress, and bracelet inside his home. Ahmad knew his goose was cooked. He had no way out of the situation, and he confessed to 42 murders. He later said, quote, We are all human beings. We have our own strengths and weaknesses. If I remember correctly, I have murdered 42 women. I did not suspect I was going to get caught. I did not try to run away when I saw the police, because I had resigned to my fate. After successfully murdering 42 times, I'm sure his confidence was through the roof. I bet he truly thought he would reach his desired goal of 70. And I should just mention to clarify that the excavation of his property started after his confession. They first discovered Sri Kamala, and then once they found her personal items in his house, he confessed. Okay, but they still found one body. They did. And it took them time to identify that body. Mm Mm-hmm before they arrested him and so he had time to get rid of those things he did it just always floors me when their confidence is that high that they're like oh I don't even need to get rid of evidence even though I know they're going to be at my house looking well and I believe when he's you know being a dukin, a sorcerer a shaman he's feeling above everybody else probably at this point in time he's gotten away with 42 murders he said right in that quote he never thought he was going to get caught Yeah, he's just feeling above it all. He probably thinks that he can cast his own protection spells against anybody coming in on him. Yeah, he would be feeling invincible. I'm almighty and I'm growing in power. There's no way I'm going to get thrown in jail for this. Which is totally a narcissistic view. It is, that's true. Because the graves had become so overlapped throughout the years, police didn't dismiss the idea that more than 42 victims could have been actually discovered. It sounded like they had a challenging time putting all the right bones together. They didn't have their own individual graves? I think some had overlapped a little bit oh, okay. over the years. That's disturbing. Mm-hmm. It was just a bone pile. Yeah, in some areas. To try and help identify the victims, authorities told the public to come forward with names of missing women in the area. 
80 additional names were brought forward. It is unsure how many more he might have murdered. However, I don't think he reached his 70. I believe it could have been the 42 he admitted to. He had such a specific goal, I'm sure he was aware of the exact number he was at at all times. Oh yeah, that totally makes sense. If you're aiming for 70, you're counting them down one by one. I believe so. But my question is, do you think he would have stopped at 70 when he reached his goal? Well, he would have had to come up with a new reason to keep killing them. Yeah, I'm not sure if he would have continued. I think by the time you've killed 70 women... You think he'd have a lust for it by then? Maybe. Hmm. But it's so goal specific that I think he would have reached a 70. And then maybe he'd come up with another reason why he had to seek more power and kill more people. That's true. That's probably more likely. Yeah, I think he would have needed another explanation of why he was killing. To be able to justify it. Yeah. Upon searching, police found a plethora of women's items that did not belong to any of his three wives when they searched the house. These items would have been his trophies. If having their faces looking at him in their graves would increase his magical powers, imagine what having their personal belongings all around him would do. And how do his wives not notice, hey, there's 42 other women's things in our house? I don't know if he was giving them to them as gifts or what. They might have just been like, oh, what a generous husband. They had to have known that something was up. Look at this jewelry, these watches, these dresses. And ignore all the newly dug holes in our backyard. Right. Speaking of his three wives, all of them were arrested for assisting in the murders and for helping to hide the bodies. Upon investigation, two of the wives were released. To Minai, the one I said must have been the head wife, was officially charged and tried as his accomplice. I'll go over what happened with her trial after we discuss Ahmad's. His trial began on December 11, 1997. The charges against him compiled a 363-page document. That's how many charges he had against him to fill that amount of paper. That is crazy. During his trial, Ahmad made sure not to put any blame on his dead father. It was like he wanted to defend his honor. He later said, quote, My father did not specifically advise me to kill people, so I was thinking it would take ages if I had to wait to get 70 women. Because I was trying to get to it as fast as possible, I used my own initiative to kill. That was why, from 1986 until now, I have killed 42 women. When explaining why or how he became a sorcerer, he said about his father, quote, I aspire to follow in the footsteps of my father. I did not learn sorcery from anyone else but my father. And I think even as a grown man, he was desperate for his father's approval right to the very end. Yeah, it seems that way. And was there any reports of his father having a little bit of shady dealings with any of his customers? None at all. Okay. And I think that's why he wanted to make sure his father's name remained cleared. Mm. Because his father didn't tell him to kill these women. He just said you had to drink the saliva. And Ahmad shared that with the police. That this is why he was doing it. Because his father had instructed him to do so. Okay. Ahmad also confessed to enjoying the financial gains of his crimes. He said murdering these women was an easy way to make money. He said, quote, if I just robbed people, I could get shot or put in jail. But this way, people came to me. I took their money. Then I killed them. What? What a dirtbag. So they came to him. That He must have told them a fee ahead of time, mm-hmm. which they were going to pay him anyway. So he didn't need to kill them. Right. But he's saying, and in his experience, this was true. He went to prison for over a decade for theft, but was allowed to continue killing women for 11 years undetected. So he's saying, I tried the stealing, 
that got me in trouble and got me in jail. Killing women was great. They came right to me. I wasn't going to get arrested or shot. I had it made. Oh, that is such a bizarre way to look at that. Right? But it did pan out that way for him. Yeah, that was his experience with it. It just goes to show you that our experiences are really framed by our view on things. Absolutely. Yeah. When you think to yourself, what were they thinking? Yeah. It's because their views are totally different. They're not thinking the same way some of us are thinking. He's thinking that, oh, look, this was such an easier way, an easier way to get money because he got away with it for so long. Yeah. Yet he's killing people. Yeah. Well, he's saying I have less chance of going to jail if I do it like this. Oh. During his four-day interrogation, Ahmad shed some light on Sri Kamala's last moments. He explained that she had gotten into a fight with her fiancé and was worried he would leave her for another woman. This is why she sought the all-powerful Dukin's help. How many women will die in the name of love? Too many. It's so sad. It really is. I feel like we've been on a roll lately of like, this woman died because she fell for somebody. And maybe it's just the cases that I'm researching, but so many women die for love. It's really sad. And I wonder how bad he would have felt afterwards. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't want that on my conscience. Not that it was his fault at all. No. But you would totally feel terrible knowing that you got into a fight with your fiance and she went to this killer for help just so you wouldn't find somebody else. True. I was trying to think in my head, though, would I feel more bad? If it was actually true and I was slipping out on her or if it wasn't true at all. Both. (laughs) (laughs) It's always both. I think I don't know that one would be worse than the other. It would just be terrible all around. Yeah. You would feel some responsibility for it. You would. Even though it wasn't your fault. Mm -hmm. Ahmad told the authorities that Sri Kamala was afraid during her last night alive. He said, quote, that night she was scared. Because we had to walk through a cemetery to get to the sugarcane plantation. The cemetery of all of his old victims? I don't know. Or I don't know if there happened to be a cemetery close by. But he's just walking across his property to the next door neighbor's property, isn't he? That's how I understood it. But he's saying we had to walk through a cemetery. So maybe there was another one and he went a different way to walk her through the cemetery. I don't know. Okay. He said, I told her it was fine, but she insisted that my wife accompany us for the ritual. Her spidey senses are up. Mm -hmm. Sri Kamala was the one who asked for my wife to come along, and that was how my wife got to know about the murders. He continued to explain that he and Taminai had to repeatedly reassure Sri Kamala she must have had a bad feeling and had been so terrified. He kept trying to make her think she was going to be okay, even while burying her up to her waist. He said it took between 12 and 15 minutes to kill her and suck out her saliva. And what is his wife thinking this whole time? If this is her first experience with how he's doing these ritualistic killings, how is she able to reassure Sheree Kamala? It's debatable if Tamini knew what was going on all along, or if she didn't know up until the point of him strangling her what was going to happen. She might have believed that this was part of the ritual. Right. And she would have seen him walk off into the forest a whole bunch of times with a whole bunch of women. Right. And not come back with them. (laughs) I'm just having such a hard time believing that she didn't know. Yeah, I'm not sure. And we will talk about her in a minute. Okay. I agree. I feel kind of the same way. How did the wives not know? But we have seen in many other cases where the wives had no idea what their husbands were actually doing. True. You turn a blind eye and you see what you want to see. And are they really paying attention to what he's doing outside? Mm Mm-hmm. And that was a long time to kill her. That was a long time to suffer. 
15 minutes of him strangling her? Yeah. He must not have been very strong then. He wasn't a big man. Huh. And you think by your 42nd victim, you'd have it down to an art. You would think so. It should only take three or four minutes. Maybe he enjoyed the process. Maybe. Oh, could you imagine if he was like letting off and letting her gasp for breath and then tightening it again? Maybe it produced more saliva that way. Maybe. Because that seems like an awful long time for him to be strangling somebody. 15 minutes? Yeah, between 12 and 15 minutes. That's what I thought too. That's a long time. He was doing something else. The only thing I can think is that it would produce more spit for him. So gross. Now the spit is collecting in my mouth and I'm like, no, go away. I know. Many times while I was writing this, like just typing saliva makes Mm. you salivate. When asked about why he stripped her naked, he said, quote, if I were to bury my victims without any lining, their bodies would decompose faster. So I stripped her with the help of my wife, rolled up her clothes, put them in a plastic bag. Then I headed home. So he's admitting that Timini helped him after the fact. And he didn't abuse them. There's no record of him abusing them. They weren't afraid of him to go along with him. Not at all. They would have been looked up to. They're the wives of this powerful sorcerer. So bizarre to me. This well-respected dukin. These statements totally threw his wife, Timini, under the bus and was the reason she was also put on trial. He tried to defend his wife by saying that this was the first time she had helped and that the other two had no idea what was going on all those years. When Nagatia and Tamina were released, they left their eldest sister and their husband behind and fled the village. They were like, nope, we're out. See you later. Yeah, no kidding. See you never. <laughs> During their trials, both dirtbags pled not guilty, saying they had only confessed because they were being tortured by the investigators and could no longer take it. So they changed their story for the trial. I do believe that they are probably tortured. A four-day interrogation? Mm-hmm. There was probably some torture going on. It was probably not pleasant. No. Do we feel sorry for them? Mm, no. Not really. <laughs> <laughs> Especially not him. I don't know for sure Tumini's real story and involvement, but for him, bring on the four days of torture. He should have had 42 days of torture, one for each woman. Yeah. In my opinion. <laughs> not that I'm promoting violence, but kind of for him. The youngest was 11. Yeah, he that's deserved awful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sorry, I'm standing by it. (laughs) (laughs) You always have such bigger convictions than I do. (laughs) Like, uh... If he had done this to my 11-year-old girl. Oh, for sure. Mm -hmm. Yep. Would I want him to be tortured? Absolutely. Yes. Do I think we should torture people when we're interrogating them? No. No. (laughs) I don't. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Yeah. I don't think that should be a regular practice. Despite his pleas of being innocent, Ahmad Siraji was found guilty by a three-judge panel on April 27, 1998, of Indonesia's worst killing spree at the time. Although it was a very uncommon sentence, he was sentenced to death. When this sentence was read out, people cheered in the courtroom. This case had gained a lot of public attention, and the courtroom was filled to the brim. It was reported that Ahmad remained impassive, not showing emotion throughout his trial and sentencing. Ahmad tried to fight his verdict and sentencing. His lawyers argued that he didn't get a fair trial due to all the media coverage of the crimes. His wife, 38-year-old Timini, was also found guilty of her part in the crime. They believed her actions were deliberate. She was also sentenced to death. However, her sentence was later changed to life imprisonment. And has she made any statements after the fact? None. Huh. None that I could find. Like I said, there was a lot of articles that were not in English. Yeah. So that made it a little more challenging for me. On July 10th, 2008, Ahmad was executed by firing squad. 
The execution went forward, despite a last-minute plea from Amnesty International, a human rights group. What? Uh-huh. I just think that's wrong. What about the human rights of 42 women? I know. That was my first reaction, too. But then I thought, they're a human rights group. They're anti-capital punishment. Okay. Because that was my thing, too. I'm like, Amnesty International, get away from that. Let it be. Yeah. I can see that. Everybody has their rights to mm-hmm. live. He was a human. Even dirtbags. Yep. I have to ask, if he really had magical powers, why wasn't he able to save himself? Regardless, thankfully, his plea for clemency was denied. Is it totally wrong that I'm wondering? I wonder if they made him dig a little grave and filled him in so that he couldn't run away while they they fired at him. (laughs) They didn't. (laughs) But that's a brutal way to die. Firing squad? We don't hear that very often. Back in the olden days, but like I said, this is a more current case. Before his death, Ahmad had only one wish, to be able to see his wife. And they granted him this wish. He got to talk to her one last time. And this is another reason I believe she was his favorite. Mm. The other two had left him by this time. They had. Ahmad had served 10 years in prison before being executed. Reportedly, he gave up his shamanism and converted to Islam. He became a devout follower of his new religion. He was somewhat of a celebrity to his fellow inmates, making him quite popular. So popular that he began giving religious advice to his prisoner friends. Oh, no. He said, quote, The black magic came from God. I don't have it anymore. I have repented. I hope I have a chance to live. And I thought, why? Why do people idolize serial killers? He had even murdered children. But he was like this great almighty killer in the prison. Well, he's a killer amongst other criminals. I guess so. Right? So it's whatever you worship. I guess. But... In North America, people who murder children do not fare well in prison. Yeah, that's true. They're not put on a pedestal. Yeah. And what was his that comment that he made about God? He said, black and... magic came from God. Mm. He says, I don't have it anymore. I've repented, meaning I'm assuming he means repented of the murders. Okay. I hope I have a chance to live. So this type of statement to me is dismissing any responsibility. Yeah. He's saying it came from God and I've repented. So it's all good. Like I should be forgiven. I should be allowed to live. It's just a bizarre statement to me. It's a dirtbag statement. It's him trying to justify what he did. Yeah. In my opinion. Some journalists claim that because Ahmad was a traditional sorcerer, his crimes are looked on with a bit of tolerance by the people of Indonesia. However, the people in his community were so outraged and felt so deceived by him that they totally destroyed his home. Mm. And they really did. I saw pictures of the house inside and there was only walls left. It's surprising how often that happens, that the poor house has to take the blame for the dirtbag that lived there. Yeah, but I wouldn't want to move into a house. (laughs) Don't you remember us watching Sinister? You don't want to move into a house where (laughs) stuff like that has happened. (laughs) It's true. If any of you missed it, that was our Halloween movie that we watched. (laughs) Yeah, we learned not ever to move into a haunted house. And I learned that Melissa's fight or flight is definitely flight. (laughs) (laughs) She may have hurtled herself across the room when her daughter came in the house. (laughs) You weren't supposed to tell anybody that. (laughs) You share all my embarrassing secrets. (laughs) I am the bigger scaredy cat of the two of us. (laughs) Yeah, I will agree. (laughs) That's why it takes some convincing to make me watch scary movies. I just had such a fun time watching you during a scary movie. (laughs) It was great. I think we need to watch part two next. Yes, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) But now back to his neighbors. (laughs) One of his neighbors expressed feeling betrayed by a man who was once so respected in their community. 
At the time of Ahmad's death, the family members of his victims were still so outraged. In fact, the plans that were made to bury Ahmad's body in the public cemetery had to be cancelled. There were over 100 people waiting at the cemetery ready to disrupt his funeral. So this is 10 years later. They're still riled. I don't think I've ever thought about that, but they actually get a funeral, hey? Yeah, of some sort, I guess. I think it was more meaning like the burial. Okay. Because I think in a lot of them, they will just go to the burial. They might have a spiritual leader, you know. Yeah, say some words. Say something and then bury them. They're not having a memorial service for him or anything like that. Not like we know it. Okay. As far as I'm aware, anyways. I don't know who would have even been able to attend his funeral. But the townspeople were like, nope, we're not letting him have a peaceful burial. Mm. So it had to be canceled. A different local healer said about this case, quote, the case of Ahmad Siraji is an aberration. If you don't have the right background, the right education, or the right teacher, then things could go badly wrong. Another said, quote, He pretended to be a shaman who could heal any kind of disease. If someone asked to be healed, both their possessions and their lives were taken. Today, as far as I could tell, people still visit sorcerers in Indonesia, some even in the shopping centers of major cities. Many people who use these services admit that there is always a risk when messing around with the supernatural. Hence why I never allow a Ouija board in my home. <laughs> we just don't go there. You just don't want to set yourself up. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to invite anything into your home that you don't want to have there. <laughs> Despite traditional sorcery still being practiced, the people who lived in the same village as this grotesque serial killer say they have been deterred from seeing other mystics. I'll end by one last quote from the disgusting killer of the day. In his final interview before being executed, reporters commented about how less concerned he was with being put to death than he was about not completing his goal. Ahmad said, quote, the target was 70. Yeah, that just totally speaks to narcissism to me. It does. And zero remorse. Mm -hmm. And that is the case of the totally nasty dirtbag who was willing to do anything to make himself as mighty and powerful as he possibly could, the vile and putrid Ahmad Siraji. That was a disturbing case that you brought us, Christy. I always find it so fascinating when we go to other countries and explore how their criminal system works and how their court systems penalize their criminals. For sure. It's always good to broaden our horizon about what's happening or what has happened in other parts of the world. Mm -hmm. But that's it for me this week. And Melissa will have another case for us in just seven days. But until then, we hope you have a wonderful week. See ya. Bye. Me too. <laughs> Are you excited because it's not your turn? Yes. <laughs> it's always so much easier. I just get to sit back and listen to the story. I know. That's how I feel when you record. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't know. Okay. So, Christy, what do you... So, Christy, what do you... What do we do? What do we do? There's something that sounds loud. There's just dying off now. Oh, that's the heat. Okay. Yeah, because it's getting cold in Canada. <laughs> up in this neck of the woods. <laughs> you can Spider-Man your butt up there. <laughs> I'm fine. I'm fine. Everybody's fine. Everybody's good. <laughs> <laughs>
Ariska, see, you are smiling. <laughs> dry? My mouse is so dry. Couldn't be all the chocolate and gummy bears we ate before we started recording. And that's why we're so all over the place. Is because we're already hyped up on sugar. <laughs> when will we ever learn, Christy? You're doing the movie room. I only have little arms. <laughs> okay. Like I said, why are we so weird? <laughs> At least our weirdness matches. Sorry, did you want to say her name again? Because you were chewing a gummy okay, bear? Okay, sure, maybe. <laughs> okay. 70 fun treats. Woohoo. In two days. <laughs> Do we ever not snack when we're doing this? Rarely. Yeah. <laughs> We've conditioned ourselves. That we have to eat while we do it. Ahmad told the authorities that Shri Kamal... Ahmad told the authorities... Ahmad, yeah. Ahmad told the... Th- oh. Ahmad told the authorities... Guess what he did? He did. He told them. <laughs> <laughs> Just think of a dill pickle. That'll make you... <laughs> that'll make your mouth water. Okay. okay. Let's hope we never have to decide what kind of capital punishment we want to go under. <laughs> hey, we're live, pal, and we'd love for you to come check out our podcast, Tales from the Estate. Each week, we talk about our top five favorite somethings. My beautiful wife, Caitlin, likes to share all sorts of random facts. Yeah. Did you know that cows have accents? We did now, but we also review all sorts of snacks and other great things. And so if you love everything random, I think you'd enjoy Tales from the Estate. So come check us out. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Bye. I'm Jeff Woods, and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people. He, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. Had all, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all have. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from JeffWoodsRadio.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.